Ligon and this is our latest edition of the Time of the Month podcast. And joining me tonight is my co-host, Linda Pollock. Hello, Linda. How are you doing, Laura? I'm very well. How's yourself? Hi, all the better for being in your company. Oh, thank you. I'm actually really excited for our discussion tonight. Uh, We're talking tonight about Queen Esther. So we are an interesting character. And joining us in our discussion is Ruth Forsyth. Hello, Ruth. Hi, Laura. How are you doing? I'm very well. And how's yourself? Yes, doing okay, thanks. It's nice to see the sunshine here in Glasgow. And uh, you are an OLM, aren't you, aren't you, Ruth? That's correct, yes. So I'm an OLM with the Glasgow Presbytery. Uh, and you are also a community development worker. Is, is that correct? That's correct. Well, I'm the community development director at Finn's Place, which is a wellbeing organisation. So we're based at Langside Church in the south side of Glasgow, and I run the, the programme that we run there. What's an OLM? Good question. Do you know what? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Time of the Month podcast. And we are now on our June edition. Can you believe it that, that we've got to June? So I am Laura Dygan. And joining me tonight is our co-host, Linda Pollock. Hello, Linda. Hey, Laura, what's happening? Oh, all good, all good. Enjoying some uh, summer sunshine, which has been lovely. What about yourself? I'm doing great. I planted some seeds. I'm only a month or so late, but sure, I have to plant them and give it a go. We'll see what happens. I didn't realise I planted courgette seeds, and they just look like the seeds you get out of the pumpkins. I daft am I. I can't wait to see what happens. But great big runner beans and beetroot. I'll let you know how it happened. Next six months, I'll ask me in six months and we'll see what it was like. Ah, and that's how we could get some pictures up as well. Actually, I've um, I've been planting as well. So I have um, with my wee grandson. And that's it. Normally, I actually would have started planting a wee bit earlier, but the weather's not been just just right. So this is it. It's now, let's get in the garden. We've got some sunshine. Nice. <laughs> Get the seeds in. <laughs> so I'm really excited about our discussion tonight because we are going to be uh, talking about Queen Esther, a really interesting character. Eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was yeah. she a, was she a sex object or was she a sage? Mm. We will we will discuss. We will discuss. <laughs> And helping us to discuss is our guest this month, who is Ruth Forsyth. Hello, Ruth. Hi, Laura. How are you doing? I'm very well. And how's yourself? Yes, doing great, thanks. Enjoying a little bit of late evening sunshine here in Glasgow. Oh, wonderful. And are you excited to be joining this conversation too? (laughs) Absolutely. With two wonderful women like yourselves, who wouldn't be? (laughs) <laughs> that was the right thing to say. <laughs> uh, well, Linda's the wise one. That's what I say. <laughs> I used to, I, <laughs> I used to live in West Cork, you see, so I've kissed the Blarney Stone. <laughs> I'd rather be shot than poisoned. <laughs> 
Oh, so Ruth, it would be lovely for our listeners to, to know a wee bit more about you. I understand that um, you are a community development director at um, Langside Church, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Um, Langside Church started a, a wellbeing project a number of years ago, and um, I took on the job of being the project coordinator really and um, my title now is community development director of Finn's Place so we call the project Finn's Place and my role is to manage the whole project keep it all running and um, get the funding keep it going and um, keep everything ticking over so yeah that's what keeps me busy during the day. Uh And you will be getting kept busy just now I would imagine because um, people's well-being really has been um, oh pushed to the brink I think during this pandemic eh? absolutely I think we're going to see a huge amount of people with you know mental health uh, troubles over the next wee while and it's we, we haven't been able to do so much you know that we would normally do and people who would come to us quite regularly for their own well-being and mental health have um, not been able to do anything over the last year and a bit. So we, because Glasgow is moving into level two this weekend, we're now able to restart some activities. So we'll be starting next week as well. Some of our activities back up again. Yeah, right. so. well, that'll be great for you. Mm-hmm. But that's not all you do, isn't it? No, you're also an OLM um, within the Church of Scotland as well. So could you let our listeners know a wee bit about that as well, Ruth? Yes, for those of, those of the listeners who are not Church of Scotland literate, um, an OLM is an ordained local minister. So it's someone who's um, uh, ordained to a ministry, but within their own presbytery. And it's a voluntary role, so it's an unpaid role. And usually the, the OLMs do a number of hours every week. And each, each OLM has a different kind of role or function. Some will help look after vacant churches. Others will have a specific role within the presbytery or move around from church to church, depending on where they're needed. So I I have a specific role in Glasgow Presbytery. My title is Spiritual Formation uh, Advisor. And so I do various things to help complement the ministry that ministers do in their parishes. So I run a a monthly book group. Um, I lead retreats for ministers and deacons and um, uh, OLMs and readers. And, and and also do some work with elders in particular churches if I'm asked to. So various things like that that, that I do in, as my part of my OLM role. Oh, that's wonderful. And I have had the blessing of being on one of your um, retreats, and it really was. It was just what I needed at that time. So, oh, yes, I'm just you're such a blessing, so you are to the church. Well, thanks very much. Mm-hmm. So, ladies, will we get stuck in then to Esther? Will we? Yeah, back on. <laughs> so, Linda, could you give us a quick, just a quick overview of the book of Esther and who Esther is? Well, basically, the story is that Esther was an orphan. She's also known as Hadassah um, in, in the Bible, and her cousin Mordecai adopted her and reared her. Um, Queen of Persia uh, basically offended her king, Ahasuerus. Queen Vashti refused to come and display her beauty and her crown when she was uh, summoned by the king. He was having a party that lasted, I think it was 180 days, and then he had another party for a week. And at the party where he was there for a week, she refused to come and 
you know, parade like a model. And so he basically banished her from his presence. Um, his advisors saw how upset he was. And of course they had an idea to have a big beauty contest. So they called for, listen to this, all the beautiful young virgins to come to the city of Susa, which is where the king was. And they picked out the most beautiful young virgins and they were escorted to the palace. Esther just happened to be one of those young women. And in the palace, she found favor with the, the, the guy who was head of all the, the beautiful young virgins. He, he was a eunuch and his name was Haggai. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Anyway, he took a wee notion for her and he, he was very good to her because he loved that she was submissive and, and charming and gracious and graceful. And he fired extra cosmetics her way and mm -hmm. fancier food. And she had seven of her own handmaids. Um, all hand-picked by Haggai. And the long and the short of it is she caught the eye of the king who loved her according to the text more than all the other ones. <laughs> it's hilarious. He loved her more than he loved all the other young beautiful virgins. And she became his favorite. He made her his queen. And, and on the side, the story underneath, there was a, a really a narcissistic man called Haman or Haman. I don't know how you would pronounce that. And he became the prime minister, basically, of, of Persia. And Mordecai worked at the palace. He was part of the court. And Mordecai refused to bow down to, to Haman. And this was part of the package, his pay, pay deal, if you like, for Haman, that, that people had to bow down to him. And Mordecai refused. And of course, the people in the, the palace asked Mordecai why, and it's just because I'm a Jew. Um, and I think the word used in the New Revised Standard is obeisance. Is that my pronouncing that right? Anyway, obeisance, obeisance, obeisance. Okay, mm -hmm. thanks for that, Ruth. Um, but it's a biographical and scrape anyway. But he refused to do that because he was a Jew and he only gave his loyalty to God. And the long and the short of it, Haman was royally irked and plotted to basically annihilate Jews in the 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia that the king Ahasuerus, again, I don't pronounce that, that he oversaw, that he was king of. And the king agreed, signed the, the decree that Haman offered him 10,000 talents of silver to allow him to basically commit genocide. And the king says, you know what, keep the money and, and here's my signet ring and just sign, sign the decree with my signet ring and just get rid of these people who have offended you. Mordecai found out about it, and he used to go to the palace every day to keep a wee eye on his, his adopted daughter. And he told Esther, now's the time where you have to stand up and be counted. For such a time as this, you're the person in the right place. You have to go and save your people. So again, cut the story short. She, had, she told Mordecai, get all the Jews to fast for three days, no food, no water and three days and three nights and, and pray for me. So they did this and she had two banquets. The first banquet was only him, only the king and Haman. And Haman thought, oh, I'm a beast and he's just nobody like me. So she had invited him back and the king back. And at the second banquet, basically she'd kept her ethnicity a secret because Mordecai told her to keep it a secret. And at that banquet, in both banquets actually, the king says, I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom because he was just enamored with her. So at the second banquet, she told him why she was upset and what was going on. And, and she pointed to him and, and said, he's going to slaughter my people and I'll be slaughtered too. And um, of course the king was very upset and he left the room 
because you had to make this decision. And Haman fell on her lap, pleading, please forgive me, I'm sorry. And of course the king thought he was, he was uh, assaulting the queen. Mm -hmm. So he, he gulled get rid of him, get rid of him. And now unbeknownst to the king, he had built a gallows 75 feet high to hang Mordecai on because he was so sickened by Mordecai not bowing down to him. And his wife and her, his, his pal said, build a gallows and get rid of him. No big deal. You know, um, so in the end, he took the king took the signet ring off Haman and gave it to Mordecai. The Jews were saved. Haman was hung um, in the gallows and everything went well. I think that's about it. Have I missed anything of significance out? No, I think I think that's it. I think that's I mean, it. There's loads of wonderful wee details in yeah. there. Yeah. Uh -huh. I commend the book too. It's incredible when you look at, you know, the the, the fact that, that Haggai had permission to give him cosmetics and, and you know, special things. It's just, but there's loads of wee details. It's well worth looking at. And then, interestingly, uh, I discovered that in Nehemiah, apparently Esther's the queen that's referred to in Nehemiah. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, uh -huh. yes. So there seems to be, I, I don't know, that there, there's a lot of story here, you know, because I remember the first time whenever I read Esther thinking that it was going to be about, you know, oh, this, you know, a queen that's, you know, you know, you think maybe like a warrior or, um, you know, somebody really, really special. And there seems to be an awful lot of... Um, men within the story who the story they're driving it isn't there um yeah. what do you think about that ladies yeah i think very much so i think we're just rereading it again especially in the first chapter or two it's absolutely dominated by men and their control over everything their control over the country their control over the people and their control especially over women and i think it was quite significant that when Vashti you know upset the king and he he banished her he didn't only banish her but then he gave men everywhere the the right to treat their wives in the same way if they spoke against them you know so it wasn't just a personal thing it became a legal thing that women were not allowed to talk back to their husbands and they could be punished severely for it that became the law of the land so you know, it was a very oppressive society for women, um, and Esther was taken in and made a part of it. You know, mm -hmm. and um, what what do you think about the the beauty contest? <laughs> this is this is about the oh, this really um, I I find this really gets me. You know, the the beauty contest, which isn't really a beauty contest you know we say this oh it's a beauty contest you know through you know in the church and in the commentaries they all talk about a beauty contest but it's more like a kind of sexual audition isn't it yeah, very much so a cattle market almost you know they're they're dehumanized um the criteria is you must be young you must be a virgin you must be beautiful but beauty's in the eye of the beholder is it not you know, well, it is, but if the man's the beholder, then you know he can dictate what beauty is. That's exactly. the that's the thing, and I mean, it wasn't just their beauty. They had to go and spend the night with the king, and I bet you they weren't lying talking all night. You know, so the king had to get his pleasure, and if he was pleased with what he got, then that's who he chose. And if he wasn't, well, then that was you. You were condemned for the rest of your life because it says that they wouldn't go back to the virgins because they weren't virgins anymore. They would go into the rest of the concubines and that was them there, you know. So dear knows how many women he went through before he got to Esther and decided 
this is the one that I'm going to keep, you know, and, and other women who went through that process would have ended up in the harem, you know, for the rest of their lives, stuck there with no no rights, no life of their own. And basically they're at the beck and call of the king to do with as he wished, you know. So it was quite a, a very oppressive society for women. And, you know, I think we have to recognize that there still are some societies like that today, you know, um, in some Middle East countries where women are not even allowed to drive themselves. They're not allowed to make decisions. They still can't own property. You know, all of the things that we in the West now take for granted that we as women can do. There are still a lot of women who live under an authoritarian, uh, you know, regime Um where it's not just, you know, the political people who treat people like that, but it's every every husband, every male has the right to expect certain things from the women in their lives. So it's still a very real thing for a lot of women's lives to live in that kind of a society. Very oppressive. Do you remember just a few weeks ago in the news, the, the young the princess was uh, putting out information that she was being held in camp. Yes. Right. Uh -huh. And so on and so forth. Nothing yeah. ever came of that. No. Well, her dad was a powerful man. Yeah, I think part of it is, you know, we, we do trade with these countries. And yeah. so we're not going to do anything that's going to upset. And especially arms, a lot of the arms trade goes through the Middle East. And, you know, we're not going to do anything if we're going to lose billions of pounds, you know. So the, Sorry. the security and the, the well-being of one woman isn't going to stop, you know, the British government from selling their arms and making millions. No, I know. Heard that with uh, Mal Malala and the Taliban, because the mm. Taliban are perceived as the enemy of the British government. It's okay to, to, to bring Malala to Oxford and um, give her all the rights that we, we give women here, young women in this country. It's just, it's just the inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm off tangent, sorry. <laughs> Off topic. I'm away on a tangent. Oh well, see, I was um, I, I was whenever I actually was looking um, at Esther again this time, um, for for the podcast, um, I actually kept thinking about. I actually did keep thinking about you know our times. You know, I, I I couldn't quite keep within the story. You know, because I was thinking about um, uh. You know, because I had seen like some adverts, you know, for, you know, I was like Googling Esther, you know, and you get these, uh, you know, the pop up, you know, the films that have been made, you know, Esther, and it's like one night with the king, you know, and it's like all glamorous and all the rest of it. And you're like, no, these are like women that have been taken mm -hmm. and, and abused. And it's, um, and that's, and it's thinking about all these other women that are just cast aside. Wait. Yeah. Mm -hmm it made me think about actually even women today um who who have actually got nothing else to kind of barter with other than their bodies mm -hmm. um you know like in a, and especially in a lot of countries around the world you know that is all they've got you know um well, our culture looks down in that and dismisses it and judges the, the women Partially, I think, but if you have to survive and if you've got a couple of kids or a clatter of kids, or if your life's at stake, you know, yes. it's easy to talk yeah. from our position of uh, relative comfort and, and ease. But uh, I think I think when you live under such oppression, you have to use whatever you've got. Yeah. And, and if all you've got is your body and your charm and your beauty, if you have it, you know, then that's what you have to use because you have no other way, you know, of dealing with it. And, and I think very often... Um, I think women are very often accused of being subversive or, you know, manipulative, but actually that's all 
the options that are left open to them. You know, to get any kind of power or any kind of rights or any kind of um, freedoms, they have to do that in order to survive and to get what they need. You know, so um, it's a very different way of life. It's very difficult to to see a way forward from it. Yeah, because especially like nowadays, you know, we would look at Queen Vashti and be like, yes, oh, mm-hmm. she's standing up for herself. She's standing up for her rights. And uh, she's not taking and She's not wanting to be paraded about and amongst all these drunk men and probably groped and actually probably worse. You know, she's standing up for herself. Mm-hmm. And we would, you know, we'd be like cheering her on and it'd be like sisters together. We would be getting behind her and we would be like, right, you know, we're, we're standing up for you as well. We're... But but the women then they didn't have that they didn't have that um that luxury of being able to do it. So it's like, well, I well, I've just got to take my chances here. I'm getting rounded up. I've just got to do this. You know, it's the there was no agency. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Maybe she was a wee bit longer in the truth than Esther and had a bit more um of a swagger about herself because she was a queen. But I mean, if you look, I was reading in the Midrash. Her excuse, the reason they said she didn't want to parade herself around in the royal robes and whatever, was that in the Midrash they say she was modest. And in the the Babylonian Talmud, (laughs) this is hilarious, she says she might have been unhappy with her appearance or, according to Rabbi Yossi Bar Chanina, Chanina, she had a sudden case of leprosy. (laughs) This is the best one. Or... The sprouting of a tail, according to the Baraita. <laughs> <laughs> and the Baraita, apparently, I didn't know what that was, is a tradition in Jewish oral law um, not incorporated in the, Mish- in the, the Mishnah. Um, and it refers to uh, teachings outside of the six orders of the Mishnah. But come on, talk about trying to harmonize something. That's 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 because they're all written by men, Linda. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this has become a pattern, Ruth, in all our time of the month um podcasts. How men have manipulated the text and the story and, and manipulated the characters. Mm-hmm. You know, Vashti's portrayed as a a woman who is who's a scorned because she's, she stands up for herself. But I don't know, I think maybe Esther and I suppose we would say she maybe was slicked or underhanded. I think the better word is subversive. Um, mm-hmm. That she she knew she had to be submissive um, mm-hmm. until she, she she managed to convince the king that she was worth paying attention to. You know? And that's that she was playing the game, wasn't she? She was she was yeah, playing the game. Which woman do you ad- women do you identify with? Which of these do you identify with? Well, see, I, I would. I, that's the thing, and this is why I never really liked Esther. So I'm, I'm a Vashti woman all the way. <laughs> I would rather cut, you know, I would rather, you know, like cut off my nose and spite my face. Yeah, yeah, I, hear you yeah I know. Well, I think I, I would probably, well, I think as a child growing up, I was probably more compliant. My sister was the rebel. She was the one who got into trouble, whereas I was the good girl, you know, and um, uh, did what I was told. But it was partly because of fear. You do what you're told because of fear, because you fear being reprimanded, you fear being punished, you fear being made a fool of, you know, and, and, for some people, that's the only way they deal with it is that they comply and they do what they're told. They follow the rules. And 
I became, I, I was an internal rebel, but not an external one. And it's only more recently that I've allowed my internal rebel to become, I, you know, an external one. So <laughs> the revolution, Ruth. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think it, I think a lot of women survive by being compliant because it makes life easier for them, you know. And, and I asked myself, who got, who got what they wanted in the end? Yes. Got maybe what uh-huh. they needed. Uh-huh. Esther managed to prevent, I suppose, the first Holocaust mm-hmm. uh, or genocide or whatever you want to call it. But maybe Vashti had had enough of the court. Maybe she was sick of him. Maybe she was sick listening to his moaning and yapping and gurning and misery. And thought, oh, I know how to get out of this. Aye. She's not going to be in the court. Maybe she had a dozen kids she could go and hang out with. Or maybe, you know, the ex-queen. I don't know. Had she any, any rights left? Or maybe she just had was having such a good time with all her women at her own party. She just decided, well, why should I go and why should I go into the men's one? I'm having a good enough time here. Uh, she had her own feast that going on at the time, haven't she? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah Esther, um, Esther really did um, show bravery, you know, um, and that's it. When you get into this story, you know, initially, you know, initially, you know, she kind of, you know grinds my gears a wee bit <laughs> but as you get into the story you know she really does show and actually her compliance actually could be bravery the whole time as well you know to be able to go through with it all and um you know present herself to the king and um so but she does show real bravery doesn't she when when the time comes well i think sorry go ahead linda thanks um I don't know, is, is it bravery or is it just her doing what she's been told to do all her life? Because she was adopted and Mordecai took her to Susa to be paraded as a young, beautiful virgin. Um, Mordecai told her, don't mention that you're a Jew. When he went to visit her every day, Mordecai kept an eye on her every day. You can read that one of two ways. Was he still controlling her or was he a, a genuinely concerned about her welfare? Maybe a bit of both. And and so submitting to Mordecai, her culture, the culture of female submission, um, maybe, and, and in fact, that, the language that Mordecai uses when he says to her, you're the one that has to fix this, there's a bullying in, it in my heart, and I, I, I hear, you know, and a, a sense of, with no option, the whole, it's you or, or, or nobody. And so maybe again, her compliance or submission was just the pattern of her whole life. Mm-hmm. But having said that, it may well be that her nature was such that nobody else could have done what she did. I mean, I certainly, because I'm not compliant, I was very compliant growing up, um, but as a kid, because my older siblings were just wild, so, and I could see how it affected my mummy, so I had to be goody two-shoes. Um, but but maybe her, her, her nature is one who is compliant or who's learned how to be compliant to get what she really wants in life. Maybe that was the only way that the Jews could be saved in this story. Yeah. I think as well, the narrator sets the story up to show off Esther's bravery. Because if you think about it, what we've been talking about is the, the whole prelude to Esther's role. 
And the fact that this was such a male dominated society. And then in the end, she was the one who was going to have to stand up against everything that was stacked against her. Mm-hmm. And she was the one who would stand up to the king. And, and she willingly says, you know, if I perish, I perish. And so the narrator has very carefully set the scene to say, this is the environment that she has to do this in. This is not an easy thing to do. This is not, you know, or just standing up to her boss. This is her standing up to all the power of the kingdom and power that rules every household in this kingdom, you know, and the power that is delegated to every male in this kingdom. And, and Esther stands up against it. So I think that the narrator has very carefully set the scene to show us that this woman who is absolutely powerless, then turns the tables on Haman. And I think that's the trick of the story. You know, the narrator has set it up and told the story so well that we are amazed at what Esther does and that what she does turns everything around, you know, from a crisis, an existential threat to the Jewish people, then salvation arrives. And it's through this one woman who is powerless um, at the hands and subject to the domination of everyone around her. And yet she's the one who saves them all. So I think it's an incredible story in the way it's told, you know, and the Hebrew narrative is is just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was reading somewhere about one of the Hebrew words, um, the word for taken, and it's repeated several times in the whole, the whole story where she was taken and taken and taken. And, there was no resistance in her part. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, we were talking earlier about this story being uh, a story uh, uh, that's used rather like um, what we were talking about last month about the story of the creation. Which one, which story do you want to follow? But it's mm-hmm. not a literal interpretation. This is not literally what happened, but it's a story designed um, in, a histor- in, in this case, in an historical context to give the Jews hope. Uh, like the first church, the early church, when the Christians were being persecuted um, and stories in the Gospels um, were, were given the context so that the, in their persecution, they would know, like, for example, as I hope this is not heretical, but if it is, I'm sorry, but the Ascension, for example, <laughs> some, some scholars say that that, that was a, a story that was created to give the, the persecuted Christians hope. Mm-hmm. And, other scholars now, scholars with Esther say this is a story based on, on a, in an historical context designed to give the Jews hope. Mm-hmm. Because if you look even at the, the places from India, all of which is north of Persia, uh, all the way down, a whole, whole other continent, all the way down through the Middle East, across west to Africa, North, north Africa. I mean, that's a vast area. And that's, uh, that's where, that's mostly where the Jews were scattered, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. I actually hadn't realised that myself until I had looked into, you know, the background of this. And uh, I was like, oh, wow, that was like some amount of people, you know, scattered yeah. throughout like the world, mm-hmm. like the known world at that time. Just just yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think as well, you know, if we think about who the story was written for, it was written for the Jewish people. And, you know, in, in many ways, Esther is symbolic of the whole people um, themselves in that she is powerless. She is basically a prisoner. She is, you know, at the mercy of whoever is, is around her. And, and that's where the Jewish people were at the time. They were in exile. They were under the, the power of their a foreign government. And, and they had no option but to live the way of life that was that was there. And, 
And yet the story of Esther is a story of their, the protection of the people, um, the Jewish people. And so that's that's why it's such a celebration for the Jewish people, because they survived. They survived the exile. They survived the oppression. They survived being exiled. And that's what the story of Esther is all about. It's how um, things worked to bring about their salvation. And even though the name of God is not mentioned, you know, um, it it's... It's there by um, implication, isn't it? You know, um, yeah. I mean, this story would would make a fantastic movie, and I know that lots of movies have been made about it. But you know, the plot line of this story is so fascinating, and and how certain things happen at certain moments. You know, and in between the two banquets is whenever Haman is 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 wanting to hang Mordecai and then he comes in and the king's just read about Mordecai's brave deed and saving his life and so he tells him and right what would I do you know to, to honor somebody who's so important to me and Haman thinks it's him of course and then the king says but it's actually Mordecai you know but the fact that that happens in between the two banquets is just a real little plot twist isn't it and and that's what turns everything around you know so it's not just Esther but that the king turns these things around and, and Haman loses favour so quickly. Um, I mean, it's a fantastic story, really, isn't it? Because yeah. what I really like about it, because I know that a lot of, you know, commentators have issues with the fact that God's not mentioned. <laughs> you know, it's the, you know, implication. Um, you know, they, they have real issues with this. But I think that's, I think, though, this is what we have to realise about, you know, how God works and and all our lives, you know how the Holy Spirit works. Mm-hmm. You know it's not all like woohoo, here I am. <laughs> it's like looking for the for the signs and the subtleties mm-hmm. and these wee pivots. You know the pivots um, that that happen um, that just turn things around and how the the Holy Spirit is is actually working through working through people that you know, might not even believe, you know, might not, you know, it's, that's what's really, I think, um, when you really open up the story and like, think, ah, you know, you can think, look deeper into it and think, well, I, there's, there's more, there's more to it. Just like there's, there's more to the way that God, God works, you know, within mm-hmm. our lives. Yeah. I, I, I'm with St. Augustine who said, bidden or unbidden, God is present. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that mm-hmm. that actually a very quick story. I learned my lesson a really hard way of that that saying. Um, I was asked to do the funeral of a non person who didn't even believe in God, an atheist. And I said, "Well, why would I do that? It makes no sense." And the funeral director said, "Well, you could just do it in your church, but we would have to take the cross down, and we'll just put pictures of this person up, and blah blah blah." And I said, "No, I'm sorry, I can't do that." Well. The, the person's brother stole my car two weeks later <laughs> and, and uh, as a punishment for me. And I started to think hard, but what did, did I make a mistake? And then out of the out of the, the nowhere, this saying from Augustine came to me, Linda, you made a mistake, bidden or unbidden, God is present. Mm-hmm. And so I think in the book of Esther, bidden or unbidden, God is present. Mm-hmm. You know, in every land and every story and same in, in life, uh, but we have to have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the mind to be open, to look for God, to see God. And and I, I, I wouldn't even distinguish anymore between believer, non-believer, whatever. We're, we're children of God. 
And some of us acknowledge that, some of us are really enthusiastic about it. But it's so important that we acknowledge the presence of God all around us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know. And it's just having that grace with each other as well, isn't yeah. it? And that, you know, understanding that actually we don't really know people's circumstances and what actually drives their their actions and their behaviours. And um, it, it just, I think it does make you a bit more, well, it should make you a bit more reflective. Um, mm-hmm. So thinking... Um, we were, we, we kind of brought in a wee bit about actually how things are actually still, you know, women are still being um, oppressed around the world. Um, and Linda, you were talking um, beforehand about um, the the first female prime minister of Samoa. Um, yeah. And this poor woman um, was, oh, she's had a bit of a time of it, hasn't she? Yeah. She was. She went to the parliament in Samoa to be inducted. Is that what sworn in? Whatever. And her her opponent, her losing opponent, had locked her out. Um, and so they conducted her ceremony in a tent in a marquee on the, the green of the parliament buildings. And of course, the opponent who had been prime minister before her for twenty two years was outraged and has thrown all kinds of legal challenges at this and said it's not right. It's not right. But this this woman, whose father was the first prime minister of Samoa, had grown up has grown up in politics all her life. She was the opponent's deputy minister. Was it for 20, 20 odd years? Um, no, her opponent was the prime minister for twenty odd years. But it, it blows my mind that in twenty twenty one. Um, this sort of thing can happen, but my mind shouldn't be blown because it's happening all over the world. You know, where women are, it's happening in our own country and in education and employment where women are second and third class citizens. And, and it happens to, you know, in Christian communities um, as well. Um, I mean, I, I remember a number of years ago, but back in Northern Ireland. Ireland was at a conference and Anne Graham Lotz was the speaker. She's Billy Graham's daughter. Now I would I would have very different theological views from Anne Graham Lotz, but you know, she's talked about a conference. She was a pastor's conference she was invited to speak to one time. And when she stood up to speak, most of the men in the room turned their chairs around and sat with their backs to her. Yeah. And that that's that's that was a pastor's conference. Oh, and that, you know, I think it's just you know, this is not even respect for her as a human being. Uh, and yeah, these Christians love one another. <laughs> we do, but only only if you're the right kind. <laughs> yes, exactly. If you fit in the label, the label works when you fit in the box that I've made yes. for you. I mean, I grew up in a community where women were not allowed to have any leadership positions. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh that, that's I was in churches like that all my life until about 10 years ago mm. and it, it's only in the last 10 years since being you know in in the Church of Scotland that um, I have seen women in leadership positions close up you know because it was never possible in any of the organizations or churches that I attended before mm. and you had you had to lead from behind the scenes so, and very often you would have influence indirectly rather than directly. So you could have a conversation with, you know, an elder or the minister or the pastor um, and, you know, try to pass on any wisdom that you thought might be relevant. And you might then hear them say it, 
you know, but you were not allowed to say it. It had to come through the the male voice, you know. And um, I lead a a monthly book group, as I said at the beginning, and um, we were talking about, um, gosh, I can't even remember how the conversation came up, but, oh, yes, it was about Mary Magdalene. And then the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Peter stands up and he says, but why should we listen to Mary? She's only a woman. You see, and this was obviously written back, you know, in the first century. And uh, we had one man in the, this um, book discussion group, poor man. And he said, do you think that still happens today? And I could see the faces of all the other women in the room saying, of course it happens today. You know, this is not something new. This is not something of the past. This is something that still happens today. Women's voices are still not listened to, still not heard. And you only have to look at even in the, you know, the, the business world, you know, women are not on boards, women are not in leadership positions. Um, and, you know, it, well, of course, it's just because they're not capable. All the men would say, you know, without acknowledging all the um, unconscious bias that they're displaying as they say that, you know. So I used to do diversity training and equalities training. So I know all the excuses and all the things that people can say to, to get past all of this. Yeah. We have a, friend, a female friend who actually says that, that women shouldn't be in leadership if they're not qualified. And, and my response to that is, well, how are they ever going to be qualified if they're never given a chance? Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. And I think that, yes, put a woman in. Um, and, and even if the, the woman has to be alongside a man for the first six months till she learns the language of the man and the language of the, the group she's leading, then do it. But you've got to, you've got to allow women that, to be in leadership. Now, well, somebody said we won't have true equality until we can have average women yes. in in leadership roles, just as we have average men in leadership roles. Yeah, and every we go on about the the moderator of the general assembly here, Ruth, and how we've had only had two two women, three mm-hmm. women, no, we've had four women. Sorry, four <laughs> women in the history of the Church of Scotland, and there was an opportunity for to have another woman this year, but no, and and then. Yeah. And, Anyway, I'm not gonna go down there. No, I think you can you can get you can get upset for so long and then you just have to live with it, don't you? Yeah, you I know. Yeah, yeah it's it's so a challenge. When you in those those places where your voice wasn't heard, did you learn to subvert? Yes, that's what I was actually going to ask as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you 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 try to find the, the ways that you can influence that are possible. So as I say, you might have a conversation with somebody um, and in the conversation you bring something up, you know. So, so for example, um, in, in one church I was in, um, they used to have called people up to the front to pray and they would sit down, either two people would come to pray with you and they would sit down either side of you. And very often it was two men. And there was the woman was sitting in the middle, and I said to I said to the, the the pastor at the time, you know, that's very intimidating for two men to come and sit down either side of a woman. That's very intimidating, and you have no idea how that might make some women feel, mm-hmm. you know. So so you have to try and have an influence that that will um, help men understand what it is from a woman's perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember walking down the street in Edinburgh one night at about 10 o'clock and it was getting dark and I was heading to the train station and this man came running down the, this, the, the Leith Walk or whatever it was. And there's a, an, an instant fear in your heart is running down to me to attack me, you know, and, and I, I bet you hardly any man ever walks up the street thinking that, 
And yet that's a constant presence in many women's lives, you know, because of the the way that they have lived and the way that they have been um, brought up and the way they've been treated, you know. So I think a woman's perspective is very, very important. And men just don't realize how how their behavior affects women because they've never had to think about it, you know, and they just they just don't give it any thought, you know. So So how do we change that for women, for girls, for the youngsters coming up? How do we change that? We're all well, Laura. You're not as old as me or Ruth, but you know, how do we how do we change that for the lassies coming through? Well, I think it's very very difficult. I mean, I was just listening to a radio program the other day, and it was about young girls at school who were being sexually abused and assaulted. Yes. It was absolutely horrific, and that's uh-huh. that's in our day and age. And these uh-huh. are young girls in school and young boys who have access to the internet and to a pornography feel that they have a right to demand of a female whatever they wish. And I think it was absolutely horrific what was what was happening in their lives. And this young girl was saying, as the boy was doing this to me, I looked at my teacher who was standing in the room and he just looked away you know that and really upset me Ruth it really did it really really upset me because I remember I remember this ha- this used to happen to me all the time at school I was mm-hmm. one of the girls that developed early and uh, I was forever being um groped and you were trying to keep hands away from you all the time and nobody done anything mm-hmm about it you know absolutely and and I I honestly thought that now like my son's a 20 and I thought well I've brought him up you know to really consider women and treat women the way that they should be um you know I'm thinking and so I'm thinking that other mothers are doing the same with their young Mm -hmm. young men um and I, I thought oh it'd be different for the young for the young women you know growing up now and it it really upset me to realise actually no, that no. it's actually still the same happening. And I and I actually believe it's probably worse now yeah. because of yeah. the just how much online pornography there is. And these mm-hmm. young men think that this is normal yeah. behaviour yeah. and, and normal sexual expressions. Yeah. And of course, young men don't look to women as a role model. Yeah. You know, they look to males as their role model and if the only models they see are men who are are abusive or oppressive then that's you know that's the model that they will base their own lives on and unfortunately that's still very much a part of our society even though we have all these equalities and rights you know it's it's still a reality in many women's lives that they just um, are not seen to be fully human beings Mm -hmm. and, and are treated as such. And that's it. And it takes a long time for you to, whenever you're, you know, objectified like that and you're not, mm-hmm. you know, you're not um, valued for, for, you know, for what you're saying or for your contribution or your personality, basically, it actually, mm-hmm. not even your face, you know, you don't even need to have a good face. <laughs> you know, it's basically just like what's below the inner neck. The neck down. Uh, <laughs> when that's all you're valued for, you know, that stays with you for, well, that impacts, like, actually how you live your life. You it know, does, it doesn't really it? really does. Mm-hmm. And unless you've got, you know, perhaps really good, um, you know, if you've got good parents um, or other people within your life that can build you up, you know, that it can really damage and scar you, you know, and how you live your life. Mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah. So, Linda, you were telling us about yeah. um, 
about how that there was women from 15 universities had yeah. got together recently. Yes, they got together recently and signed a letter and sent it to the government demanding that there be mandatory uh, policy for sexual assault in the universities. Um, there's no mandatory policy. Every university has their own individual policy, um, but there's none that the government has issued and each policy um, can be what it wants to be. And there was one, one girl talking about how, uh, although her assault case was upheld, she she had to give, she get, she wasn't allowed to read anything or hear anything that her the man she accused said, but the man she accused was allowed to hear everything that she said about the assault. Um, just the inequity even there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's got to be something, something done about this because as, as you both said, sexual assault is on the rise and 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 some of these most of these kids that, that fell as men it's not assault it's just mm-hmm. you know it's it's the norm and that's the scary but i was on yeah. an airplane about 25 years ago going to new york and i was sitting and this horrible individual sitting next to me started to group me mm-hmm. and i just turned around and i'm listen i'm not easy offended or anything like that so i just made the hardest fist i could make and i decked him I give him a dead thigh and I just said to him, keep your hands to yourself. And, and that was it. He never touched me again. But mm-hmm. I have the, the strength, physical strength and mm-hmm. mental strength to do that and draw attention to mm-hmm. it. But imagine if you were a woman who'd been oppressed uh, or assaulted even before mm-hmm. or had no confidence or, or your self-esteem was yeah. compromised. You'd have to sit through an eight-hour flight, an eight-hour, however long it was, and be touched by this nasty individual mm-hmm. and you, you couldn't do anything because if I was to go and say to the steward he's touching me inappropriately what was the steward going to do with me where was he going to put me you know and would he believe me would he or she have believed me anyway or was it just a, a ruse in my part to get into first class <laughs> you know but yeah I know I think I think if we think about that, though, and if come bringing it back to Esther, you know, it shows how much it took for her to stand up to the king then. And also the fact that she used herself as the leverage. You know, she said, um, because the king had agreed for the Jews to be exterminated. It said to him, and you can go and do whatever you like. And if you want rid of these Jews, well, then that's entirely up to you. It wasn't until it touched the king personally. And Esther was the one who was going to be destroyed or killed. Then he acted. So that's what Esther had to do. She had to make it personal to the king. And she had to say, you know, all these people are going to be killed. And I know that's not very important to you, but I'm going to be killed. And if you if you if I mean anything to you, then this is this is something you have to do something about, you know, and and that was what the leverage was. That's what made him act because he didn't care about the Jews. He only cared about Esther, but she used what she knew would would make him do what was what was the right thing to do and what she wanted him to do. You know, so it was quite incredible, really. Clever woman. Mm, Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Worth all that fasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's maybe something in there actually from our actions that we should perhaps be taking, you know, uh, you know, that that leaders, you know, within lots of institutions and governments should be taking into account that actually there is this personal element, you know, actually everybody does matter, you know? Yeah. And absolutely. And, and 
you know, that's there's there's something there, this this personal thing that maybe we need to just take hold of. And maybe if we we think about that, we might be able to make some change. Mm-hmm. I think it's the old story, unless it touches you personally. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to yeah. but we in the kingdom, we have got to make the difference whether it affects us personally or not. That, that, I mean, that's our manifesto. Everybody matters or nobody matters. Mm-hmm. Everyone belongs or nobody belongs. Even the, per- the perpetrator of the crimes, even the one who is inappropriate, even the one who, who assaults. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I think that, that we have got to do something about that. Um, and I think that certainly in the church, um, the roles of, in many, many of the churches, the roles of male, female are very clearly delineated and incorrectly so. Um, and I would love to see us challenging that. I really would. I'd love to see some men challenging it too. Mm. Come on, men. Oh, we've got some backbone. good brothers coming up now. I, I know we get have. <laughs> Come on, dare to be different. Be like Jesus. <laughs> love women and have elevated women. And, a, and listen, I mean, who did he appear to first after the resurrection? A woman, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, oh, what a great conversation we've had. I could actually talk to you all night, um, but I'm not sure that um, our listeners will have time for that. <laughs> so thank you so much um, for joining, joining us, Ruth. Um, we've really enjoyed your company. So we have, really have. And I really actually hope you'll come on again because... Uh, Oh yes, that's uh, I really hope you do come on again with us sometime soon. That'd be wonderful. Thank you. So friends, um we will say um cheerio for now. Um and we really would like to know what you think as well. So please do put your thoughts about Esther and about anything we've been talking about in this podcast in the comment section. Um, and uh, or any questions as well that you might have because it'd be good um, to, to find out and um, I keep saying it that I'm going to get a blog started um, about for this um, podcast but a blog will be coming very soon <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying it all the time and I'm thinking no I actually need to say it on the air so is that um, it actually happens <laughs> So we'll have a wee blog alongside it as well. So we will. So there'll be more. And this way we can keep the conversation going, friends. So we will. So we thank you for listening to us. And we will um, we will speak to you all um, again uh, next month. So bye for now. Bye. 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 bye.